Petersfield's Shine Radio. You are listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde and you're listening to Talking Books. This month we're back at One Tree Books live, which is very exciting. I've gone non-fiction for my backlisted choice, opinionated but never unreliable. That's a clue. And I'm Tim O'Kelly at One Tree Books and not that opinionated. Your guide to what's recently published and very happy that you'll be able to come in person into the shop again. Brilliant. Later, I'll be talking, I'm going to keep saying in person, to Roger Morgan Grenfell. He was a soldier in the Royal Green Jackets for nine years. But what excited me, and I'll tell him why, was that he led the first expedition to successfully retrace Shackleton's journey across the island of South Georgia. And I think a lot of listeners will know why that's important to me. Uh, not only that, he was also uh, a founder of the charity Help for Heroes, and he typically describes himself as a passionate but relatively talentless cricketer, uh, <laughs> what Shane Warne would describe as pretty ordinary cricketer. Uh, and he uh, he set up a cricket club called the White Hunters back in 1986, which is the subject of his first book, uh, Not Out First Ball. So I'll be chatting to him about cricket and career changes. But let's kick off with what you've been reading this month, Susie. Well... I've been reading two books with a difference and about difference. So the first one is called Nothing Ever Happens Here by Sarah Hager-Holt. She's a Carnegie-nominated middle-grade novelist and she writes for nine... or Certainly this book is aimed at nine to 12-year-olds. And the story is that Izzy's dad comes out as Danielle, a trans woman. Now, I can hear some of the audience groans from here because it sounds terribly worthy and it also sounds as if it's woke or any other pejorative word of things that's happening now. But it's such a glorious book. And don't we all feel different from time to time? And particularly if you are nine to 12, It can be the least thing, like the wrong colour shoes or something that really marks you out. Uh, And this is like the huge elephant in the room. And Izzy is, she's quite shy and she's terrified of what the reaction is going to be like at school. And Sarah makes it normal, funny, poignant. It's a wonderful book. The second I adore, it's a picture book, and I love picture books, called Julian is a Mermaid by Jessica Love. It's wonderfully illustrated. Um, It's about dressing up, really, and the wonderful thing that is a grandmother's unconditional love. And I won't say more than that because it's a picture book and it would probably give it all away. The other one was referenced last time in our Desert Island book by Tim Bouquet. So I um, recommended that our book club should read Reef by Romesh Gunasekara. I fancied a trip to both in place and time to Sri Lanka. And it is possibly I wouldn't say magical. I can see why Tim would and others might. Personally, for me, it was just interesting. And the other one is Crooked Heart by Lissa Evans, long listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, who I'm hoping is going to be our June guest. So well, how about you, Tim? Well, I've also been reading, actually, the wonderful Lissa Evans, um, her new book, which is called V for Victory. And it's every bit as good as Crooked Heart, um, which it sort of loosely follows on from. It's about two women. Uh, one is, is an uh, air raid warden, looking after a post it's set in 1944 1945 and it's it's when the the sort of war is pretty much over in the sense that uh london isn't being bombed anymore pretty apart from the doodle bugs and things um and a boarding house in hampstead where our main protagonist and her what she calls her nephew but uh, but there's more to that in the story um it's it's a it's an absolutely cracking it's very funny and uh, I think she's a she's a, a really wonderful writer. So more more on her in June. Like you, I've been I picked up a, a sort of young adult book. Well, it's more yours are more middle grade, I suppose. But this is a young adult book by Meg Rossoff called The Great Godden. It's a it's a lovely summer read 
Um, it's about a family on a in a obviously fairly idyllic summer, um, but they're joined by this beautiful young man who who comes on the scene and and wreaks havoc amongst his family. Ooh, so uh, that's good. It, it is it's a good read. It's a short read. You read it in in a, in a couple of sittings and well worthwhile. Um, very contrasting. I've been reading a book called The Field by Robert Sitala. Uh, who's an Austrian writer, he wrote a book called A Whole Life, which is one of my favourite books. It's a, a beautiful book about uh, uh, an Austrian shepherd and his life. It's very simple, uh, sh- very short as well, it, like the best books. Um, and it is about uh, a field of dead people and a, a sort of cemetery as such. And the uh, re- all recently dead of, of this small small town called Polstadt. And... It's their stories. They, they each tell their story. Often you hear, you know, you have a, a, a book, about, a collection of stories about a small town or something like that, and you have lots of stories. And that, it's like that, except they're all dead. And they all say, well, it was the week before I died that this happened, uh, which is quite strange. That, that's the only really different thing about the book. But he's a very good storyteller. And the stories kind of link up in different ways. Um, uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a nice book. Actually, Tim, that really reminds me of a book that I loved i hated at first by john mcgregor and i think it's called even the dogs that's right yeah Yeah. and you don't really know and it's not a huge spoiler listeners if you haven't read it yet but there are these disparate voices and they turn out to be drug addicts who have actually died and it's their wraiths and again it sounds depressing but it's so brilliantly handled Uh, he's a wonderful writer his his most recent paperback was called reservoir 13 um, mm. set up in, I think, Cumbria, somewhere like that, or the Lake District. And it is uh, very atmospheric, and uh, I think he's he's very class, classy yeah. writer. His new book is called Lean, Fall, Stand, which is uh, coming out at the end of this month, I think. Oh, I look forward so, to that. Uh, that's one, one to watch. Um, the book I'm actually reading at the moment is called Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine. Um, she's a wonderful... A uh, young American writer who writes slightly in the vein of Anne Tyler, except a bit more 21st century. Um, small town America, very quirky characters. The main character, Jane, is a young teacher, uh, primary school teacher, and full of, full of charm and, and wit, and definitely to be recommended. But more on that when I finished it. Excellent. Petersfield's Shine Radio. We're joined by Roger Morgan Grenville. So I've got to ask you, first of all, Roger, why Shackleton? Uh, Right, I'll tell you because you won't know this, but I am a Shackleton. I was born Susan Shackleton in Portsmouth. So my dad was an inveterate liar, so it's probably no relation. (laughs) He said we were, but then he said he won the war. So there you go. Because of that, if I think I might wuss out of something I always think come on girl you're a Shackleton gird your loins so you don't even know what kind of Shackleton you are <laughs> no I, I'm probably the the weak painter one no the what well, the why Shackleton um I was sent down to South Georgia with the army in the wake of the Falklands war and my then girlfriend gave me um, who was in publishing gave me about 26 books and said if you read all those while you're there you'll come back well read and one of them was Shackleton South. And I realised on the boat on the way down that no one had actually done this successfully. So I applied for permission. And unbelievably, it was all a bit kind of easier then. They said, yeah, go for it. Um, and so we just did the last bit, which was his journey with two other people from King Harkon Bay to um, Stromness, to the other whaling station on the other side of the island. And... It was extraordinary because you know, we made a meal of it over two days. He'd been out there for 17 months. So, yeah, it was um, one of the more moving things I'd done in my life. And is that where you came across Shearwaters? Cause... No, I came across Shearwaters 12 years earlier up in Scotland. But the Shackleton connection was that a Shearwater is basically a mini northern albatross. Yeah. And I was obsessed with them when I went down to the Antarctic and I first saw wandering albatrosses, which have 12 foot wingspan. And then that kind of morphed back into the Shearwater when I got back up north again. But I've, I've really just always been obsessed by, but they're called pelagic birds, ones that spend their lives out at sea. 
much more fascinating than land birds for me that are mostly little brown jobs it seems to I, I i think it's the way they live and the and it's this idea that that the bird sees the ocean as safety we see the ocean as danger the bird only comes to land when it has to to breed and I love that. So as I head out to sea on a choppy, no, on a boat on a choppy sea, and I'm thinking, God, I'm going to be sick yeah. and it's dangerous and we might sink. The bird is going out there with this great sense of relief. Oh, and grace. Um, and grace. And, yeah, and, it's, it's, and, you know, the young ones will fly for, will not touch land for four years. Oh, four years is extraordinary, isn't it? I think it's wonderful. Right, so I've gone slightly off piece here. I've got to say this is your fifth book now um liquid gold i adored it was all about bees very dear to my heart but it's also about midlife friendship marriage we've been there um i love the way that you write in a very self-deprecating way that sounds honest now i've put that in inverted commas you could tell me it's all true but it did make me laugh out loud so often that i was reminded of clive james that's another clue to my backlisted choice is it true Everything happened, but possibly not in the order that I wrote it. I mean, yes, it is true. Um, and we were and are highly incompetent beekeepers. And it was quite funny. But the, you know, the, the, the main thing is that with people like me, people like most of us, these things don't run in a straightforward way. You don't suddenly get good at something. You have to go through this hinterland of being awful at it and making terrible mistakes. But you hated being told by experts, didn't you? Oh, well, well, yes. I had a sort of desperate time with a local beekeeping society who I caught marking me on attitude. And I thought, (laughs) look, look, I'm I'm 57 or 58. I don't do being marked on attitude. And well, it was just, just, you know, I I want to be a child and do this without being marked. And so I kind of resigned. Um, And... In fact, anyone who wanted to go beekeeping now, I'd say don't resign, do it, take the pressure, because you'll be a much better beekeeper than I have been. Just get out there, learn it properly, because it's expensive on you and it's expensive on the bee if you don't. And is that the same process that you used in Shearwater? Shearwater was different because with the beekeeping, they created their own adventure. You know, you you have to go down every seven days and check them. You have to do the job. And in a way, you simply roll with the rhythm of nature. The Shearwater, I had to create the adventure. And one of the big sort of challenges of the book was I wrote most of it during lockdown when none of the islands wanted to see me. And so I did a huge splurge before the lockdown. And then in that wonderful time at late July and all of August... I just ran around the islands of Wales and Scotland and did sort of six months worth of research, slept in the back of my car half the time. So it was, it, 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 it was creating the adventure. But I think one of, one of the things I felt very strongly was the shearwater is not a bird that's going to be boxed in like a bee. The shearwater, the canvas it paints on is the whole world. Mm. And so I had to go down to Argentina to find out where it sort of painted the southern bit. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I love the structure of the book following the journey of the Shearwater. Um, And because of the way you talk about yourself, I wondered whether that was just a great book structure or middle-aged wanderlust not quite out of your system. Completely the latter. Um, (laughs) And I I remember when I bought the air ticket for Argentina, I had no... No idea I was going to go. Just over supper, I thought that'd be quite fun. And I used all my air miles and 300 quid, and I bought this return ticket to Buenos Aires and then told my wife. I was going to say, and, what did your wife well, have she, to Well, no, she was all for it. And I said, look, if I don't do it, I won't go. And if I do do it, I kind of have to go. Um, and I, I do think that, that there is a theme in my sort of last three books, which is about middle age, which if you know, on the condition that you're given health and you are, have the financial ability to put food on the table, it's better if you treat it as an adventure. Mm. You know, and there, there is a lot of people, a lot of voices in your ear saying, be careful, work towards the pension, be cautious, do this. No, that route is misery. If you do unusual things, and I ended up when the, the most poignant part of the book for me was with a group of students and backpackers in this backpacker hostel in the middle of the Valdez Peninsula in this salt, this salt mine village. 
And I thought, they won't want me here. I'm 59. They are 22. But they just welcomed me. And they said, look, the fact you've made it out here and you're wandering around looking stupid with a backpack means you're one of us. And I thought, OK, I'm not pretending anything, but boy, I feel good. You come across, Roger, I might say, as a man of great enthusiasms through the books, but now that I've met you in person as well, um, with a very powerful recall of childhood. So it made me wonder, what sort of child were you? Did you have great passions then? I think I was quite a boring child. I can look back now through the prism of you know, 50 years, and I do have huge recall of how things unfolded. And I think that so much of the memory of my childhood is stories being well told. And maybe one of the things I try to do is sort of retell stories or make myself the story. And, and, and I think there are plenty of enough people saying how wonderful they've been. And many of them have. But actually, I've always rather enjoyed the ones who say, um, like no, Clive James, who you mentioned, who say, well, actually, I wasn't very wonderful. And I think that middle age, part of middle age is a process of revisiting childhood. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. But often it's, gosh, I wish I had taken that one further. As I think Shearwater was the thing of taking that further. I was useless, as a child, I was sort of middle ranking academic, useless at sport, quite lazy. And I think an awful lot of what I'm doing is going back there and kind of re-bricking that wall. People try to um, oh, um, gild the lily. They try, they try and look back at their childhood as a magical time. Very Most often it isn't. Most often it's an awful lot of complications. And, you know, I found teenage absolutely horrible. One of the reasons I went up to Scotland as often as I did was to get away from being a right-on 1970s teenager because I was useless at it. I got much better years later, but by that time I was 50. Were you an only child? No, no. I had, uh, I had a, I have an older sister who was more adventurous than me, sort of at, at the time, and sort of therefore she dragged me into doing things I wouldn't otherwise have done. And you know, it all changes. I joined the army and suddenly realised I was not a bad soldier. But how much older than you was she? Uh, two and a half years. Right, that's enough, particularly for a boy, I think, that you would have felt you were mediocre at something because she would naturally be better. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Even just two and a half years older. No, and um, and she was sort of stronger and... But it was the more eventually, it was to climb the tree higher and yeah. then I'd follow up and all the way I'd be going, should I be doing this? Yes. But, no, here I am now, 61, and... I think I, I very constantly want to do all these things before I can't. And actually, one of the wonderful things about jumping on an aeroplane and going out to the... Um, there was that night when I jumped on the plane to Buenos Aires and I looked around me and there were all these sensible people and I was thinking, you know, I was in row kind of 86 by the loo. And I thought, if you, you lot only knew what I was doing. And then within two hours of arriving in Buenos Aires, I'd been mugged and had my backpack nicked because I'd forgotten the rules. You know, um, the rules are you put your leg through the backpack when you stop. Yeah. And that was it. Most of my stuff had gone. Oh, and heck. I remember sitting in the hotel room afterwards going, you're going to learn. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've referenced the Hebrides. And one of the things that I want to say is that, um, well, just tell me more about your Hebridean grandmother. I'm absolutely fascinated by her and, and your... What did you learn from her? Do you think it was resilience or why is your relationship so important referenced in Shearwater? I think that she was utterly genuine and she didn't tart anything up. She pointed, for me anyway, she pointed at the wild world out there and said, it's not going to come to you, you go to it. That's the principal thing. And sitting on a cliff, I've talked about it in the book, watching Fulmers and um, Gulls and things. And it's clear that this moved her extraordinarily, even though she lived in the middle of it. But you were never allowed to anthropomorphise these things. You couldn't say, oh, isn't it sweet? I wonder what it's thinking. She would say, <laughs> she was absolutely not, no, this is, a, this is a bird and that's what it, no. And this it has is, its own wonder. It has its own, yes, it does its own thing. Right. She was sort of, she had a very unhappy life up until she pitched up in Mull where her life suddenly became very happy because it became very simple. 
And so she would say, no, she she she, she did have running water, but um, she used to rail against the people who put fluoride in the water. So we all had to go out with these huge, you no, know, 10-gallon containers and fill them up in a spring. And you'd carry them back for your breakfast or you'd chop up wood for your breakfast or you'd get sent out to sea, literally, without wow. a life jacket at the age of 12. And she said, don't come back till you've got six mackerel. And my dad, if he'd known what we were doing, would have been appalled. But he didn't. So, and we survived. Yeah. I sometimes think I'd have been put into care if I was born now. Oh, oh, she, oh she, she would have been allowed nowadays yeah. to have done that. So that's one of the themes. Um, but it brings me on to one of your other really big themes, I think, is, uh, and you keep returning to it, is the importance of giving space in our crowded lives for wilderness. I wondered, what do you mean? I mean, obviously, I know what wilderness means, but what do you mean by wilderness exactly? I mean the fascination of what is beyond the streetlights. Um, and I see life as being a pavement with streetlights suddenly come to an end. That sounds rather sort of artificial, but I do. And I think it is what happens when you go beyond what humans have constructed to make you comfortable. And uh, that, that thing of you know, when you go round a headland and the footpath stops... That's wilderness. When you are somewhere and you haven't got a clue how to get out of it, that's wilderness. And I think one of the reasons, very powerful reason with me, is it's all made so safe for us now. And that's good. You know, more of us survive. But by removing our ability to take risks, we remove, we remove our ability to judge risks. Mm. And... You know, there was a point in the Shearwater book where I had an offer, I was desperate to get out to sea, and I had an offer to go out on a very, very dodgy-looking boat. And I said yes. And then I sat on the dock and thought, actually, you know, that's just stupid, and that's not what you promised back at home. So I think I've got a quite good at measuring where to stop. But So it, the wilderness is... It also gives... I think it, it gave me an appreciation of... I've put the book, The Fragility of the Bruised Planet, that when you see a trawler and you see 30 dead albatrosses that have taken bait off a hook that has sunk too slowly, that could have sunk quicker, that breaks my heart. Mm. You know, we think with, with ocean, there's a huge amount of it, there can't be a problem. Boy, there is a problem. Oh, yeah. In everything I've written in the last sort of two or three books, you look around and you go, we need to start taking care of this. And I'm probably jumping the gun, but that's the thing. Nature isn't catching up with us fast enough to adapt to what we're doing to it, particularly something like seabirds. You know, the population of seabirds in the world has gone from 1.5 billion to half a billion in the time Queen Elizabeth has been on the throne. It's terrible. That's not great. Mm. Um, and, and it's Apart still going from the Manx Shearwater, so why do you think that is? Well, it's, it's actually very easy to say. Partly, they tend, no, 90% of them in the world breed on the west, western islands of the British Isles, i.e. UK and Ireland. And what a Manx Shearwater most needs is no rats. And oh. most of these islands have no rats. And Skoma and Skokom, which are the two biggest, no, the Welsh colonies, They've had no rats. They've been eradicated from Lundy, from St Agnes, Gewer. So that's the main thing. Um, I've also put in the book, I think one of the other reasons, is they look quite boring. And I think one of the things, you know, with the puffin, no one leaves the puffin alone. And actually, the puffin is a beautiful bird, but it's a jolly boring bird with what it does. It you know, goes out a mile or so to fish, comes back, and then in the winter goes up a bit north, you know, out into the Atlantic. What a shearwater, boring-looking shearwater does is amazing. And I think they don't get disturbed nearly as much. An albatross gets caught up in fishing lines because it's a surface feeder. A penguin can get caught up in fishing nets because it's a 30-metre down feeder. Whereas the shearwater feeds at about 7 or 8 metres, but below and above the problem. Same when they have, you know, a lot of seabirds fly into wind turbines out at sea, mm. but the shearwater flies at about five or six metres, which is above the sea but below the turbine. Oh. And they have the ability to absorb a lot of um, poisons without it affecting them, a lot of metallic poisons. So, you know, uh, they are in a good place. 
And one of the things I try to do, and I hope it comes through in the book, is be an optimist because nature is full of cause for pessimism. But if you keep, it's like we're all kids, basically. If you keep telling kids it's all useless, that's mm-hmm. what they'll believe. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they have a certain sense of optimism about it, they might go, do you know, actually, I will not go to the supermarket and buy farmed fat salmon. I'm going to find salmon that hasn't been farmed, whatever it happens to be, because I can make a difference. Back to the Barack Obama thing. Yes, we can. And, and in nature, we can. It just needs more of us to do it. So to be optimistic, do you think, I mean, more and more writers are writing about nature. Do you think that there's going to be a sort of change for the better but with sheer numbers of people banging on about it? Yes, I, I, I do. But I think it's happening painfully slowly. And it's when you see things that people have discarded, or you, see, you, you, you see some of the decisions we make particularly when you've done what I've done, which is spent a year with kind of an alternative with professors and things. And actually, I know what I'm talking about in this one. And you think, we've got all this knowledge. Why don't we actually just do it? The, the illegal fish, and one of the great things about the illegal fishing is they've actually, they're now using albatrosses to catch them because they're, an albatross follows a fishing vessel. So they're putting transmitters on them and they're finding out if the vessel is fishing illegally. I love it. And so the guy comes back and they go, by the way, you were fishing out there illegally. Here's your fine. Who caught me? Answer an albatross. That's wonderful. It's like we're all ancient mariners. Yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah. And oh, the albatross gets his own back. It's wonderful. Now, I've got to, because you're here and, you know, everything in liquid gold, just so much of it made me laugh. So we've dealt with the serious stuff. What, during your whole journey, was some funny moments, or any particular ones, any that you had to pinch yourself and just think to myself, is this actually happening to me? I, I, I think probably the funniest moment of the, of the beekeeping one was when we went to the big auction at Brinsbury, and we tried so hard to be grown up, and we said, yeah, there's, there were about 400 lots, and we said, we won't buy anything until the 20th lot, and we'll watch the thing, and we'll only take cash, and we'll stop at 200 quid. And we lasted... I think we, we bid on the first lot, which was something we didn't even want. Is that a bit book about bee sexing? Because we just found the word sex funny. Um, and we, we, by the time we got to 20 lots, we'd spent all our money. And we ended up bidding for this enormous great spinner, you know, far bigger than we could ever have wanted, against this 15-year-old kid who'd obviously been beekeeping all his life. And we were going, yes! And then we saw him cycling miserably off and thought, oh, dear. <laughs> the funny bits were the reversion to childhood. And the, you know, I could do that. And the other thing was having slightly too much to drink on lunch, going down there in my beekeeping suit, but forgetting to put the trousers on and going down in shorts and flip-flops and wondering why I got stung 14 times. Well, you can feel as sorry as you like for yourself, but... (laughs) And did you have any moments like that in the Shearwater experience, let's call it? I had one when I was up on top, on the island of Rum, which is their second biggest colony up in Scotland. They nest 2,000 foot up up on on cliffs on a mountainside, which is unusual. And I went up there and I, and I wasn't even looking for them, I was looking for something else. And I, I disobeyed that absolute golden rule of if you're going up a mountain, make sure you can get back down. And then the cloud came in and I got stuck. And I did the, you know, the middle-aged bloke thing, which is have a sandwich and try and allow a solution to propose itself, which it did, you know, and eventually I got down. <laughs> I see life sometimes in headlines, and I've put in the book, you know, idiot bird watcher falls off cliff, saying I know what I'm doing. Um, I, I have I've grown into the ability of making these things funny when they're happening, and so actually you get stung 14 times, and you go well as long as I don't die. Actually, this you know I've learned a lesson, and people are going to think that's really funny. Yes. Which, which well, uh, now there might be money in it. Well, uh, yes, there might absolutely. <laughs> don't knock it. I've actually got your expression. I noticed it myself. Our bruised planet really resonates with me as well, um, partly because of the sailing and so on. Um, And I just wondered if... I've been thinking about Isabella Tree. I loved her book, Rewilding. But from everything you've said, it sounds that your version of wilderness is not that still a little bit too manicured. Yeah, I, I, I think you no. Know, it's, it's, it's a brilliant book, and the project they're doing in NEP is is wonderful. But it is manicured, and it is heavily supported, and you know by grants and things. But I think that I think they're trying to show something that can be done, 
Whereas maybe my version of the wilderness is stuff happens and you haven't got a clue what it's going to be. You know, um, yesterday I did a long walk and I started in the um, blazing sunshine and five hours in there was a huge blizzard going on. Of course I hadn't taken enough stuff. So I was up on the downs cold. Well, my fault. You know, yeah. <laughs> no one's going to feel sorry. For so me. the journey is all. The, ju- the journey is all. And one of the problems I've had with all the books is arriving at the destination. Right. Because, you, you know, particularly when you're finishing a book to a deadline, you even if you know, the publisher's terribly good about the deadline, you, you go on this high and th- th- this fantastic thing where you press send. And it's like, you know, you're sending your baby off to school. And you, you hope they like it. Um, but then I find there's that moment where you're sort of sitting back down again going, oh, you've got to start again. And you might have found this as an author, that the thing I keep trying to explain to people is you're starting with a blank piece of paper and it all has to come from you. Mm. That is tough. That's yeah. the bit I find, you know, where you're thinking, I'm completely stuck, where do I go now? And I've got a very good editor and a very good agent and they sort of go, well, why don't you go there? Oh, that, that's handy. Yeah, that helps. So where are you going next? Are you then, able to tell us? Yes, I am able to tell you. I'm, um, for the last 10 months, I've had a one-day-a-week job as a farm labourer um, learning about cows because I think you can't write a book about cows without being kicked by them and yeah. mucking them out. And um, So I'm writing a book about the t- man's 10,000-year relationship with cattle because I think it's utterly fascinating. And I... It's really, it's also a past, present and future thing because it is fascinating how they went from dinosaur to oryx to cattle, how they got domesticated, where where they are now and what we've done to them. And then this big question, where do they go from here? Because the cow has become a scapegoat for everything that's wrong with the climate and diet and everything else. Mm. And so I'm sort of teasing out a lot of that. Now I'm going to go off and go and work on a buffalo farm for a bit in August, so long as Joe Biden wants me in. I was going to say where uh, in the Montana, right, right. so um, and just an un- understanding that the whole thing, the sort of mob grazing that a cow would do if you didn't stop it. Mm. So dogs are always called man's best friend, and I sort of think one of the possible subtitles is man's second best friend. Um, but they are they are amazing animals. And the native Indians had such respect and kept mm. nature in balance, didn't they? And funnily enough, a lot of the Northwest American, um, what they call regenerative farmers, are going, they all employ Native Americans to teach them the way, the way they do it. And I'm, I'm, mm. I'm in awe of that. Because so often the, the solution is to be found by mimicking nature in any thing that I've looked at, whether it's bees or seabirds or cattle, mimic nature. So nature means you don't have a rat on your island. Rats are not obvious island dwellers. It's only mankind's carelessness that puts them there. With cattle, it is not mimicking nature to put a cattle in a feedlot eating pharmaceutically enhanced corn that's been subsidised by is the taxpayer. methane? No, well, it's not, it's not. The methane is almost a kind of side issue. You're, you're taking an animal and making it do something it's not fit to do whereas having one wandering around grazing is you know there there is a kind of circle of the methane becomes a carbon dioxide that goes back into the soil that regenerates the grass yeah. that the cow eats there is a virtuous circle so really what, what i'm trying to do is, is looking at all that and i i go and get kicked by cows once a week um excellent i which really is... really look forward to that <laughs> well it's 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 it's, it's good fun and it's uh, it's a tough one because there's an awful lot of people who know a hell of a lot about cattle. But they might not read. They might, who not, knows? They might not. I do. Read. I'm fascinated. So, Roger, you're now a full time writer and uh, you're an example to us all that career change is possible. How do you, how do you find that, that gear change from, from you've made a couple of career changes in your life? I think the, the most important thing, I was trying to explain this to someone the other day, is I'm earning a third of what I was earning five years ago and I'm three times as happy and I that no that I'm lucky to you know my kids are off the books and you know we paid for the house so that's possible but it is the breakfast feeling it is when you get to the end of breakfast and you're going off to your work how do you feel do you feel 
I'm not very good at this anymore? Or do you feel, you know, I'm not contributing? Or do you go, just let me get in there and do something? And that was what was missing from my life. And it wasn't the company I worked with. It was me. I, I had changed. And I, I think one of the problems with a lot of problem with particularly, I suspect, men is they don't understand their capacity to change. Um, and that's what has been f phenomenal for me is just how different things can be. Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, very relevant to us all, actually, that, that we should be doing what we like doing. Um, and if writing is your thing, then that's fantastic. So you, you talk about the blank sheet of paper. So when you leave the breakfast table and you see that blank sheet, you still feel joy when you, you reach it? Or do you, or is it, is it all terror? <laughs> it's, I have a th if I wake up, I quite often get up at five with a thought and I know, and everyone says, I'll put a pad next to your bed. But I know if I have a thought, that's it. I won't go back to sleep. And what I tend to do is, however, no, this, this thing about writer's block, it, it may be right, it may not, but I think, just write something however rubbish it is however meaningless it is so what i tend to do with a chapter is i'll write a five six thousand word chapter in a day or a day and a half but then i'll spend a month coming back to it and teasing words and sentences and changing it around and adding things in and it begins by being a you show it to someone and they go are you serious and then by the end of that process and that's the exciting bit there's no terror there right. Good. Well, that's, I'm, I'm reassured by that. OK, well, it comes to the stage now where we ask you for your Desert Island book, a book that you want to take with you to that mythical desert island. What would it be? I had a thought about this, and I think one of the books that changed my life was Adam Nicholson's A Seabird's Cry, because it basically gave me permission to go off and do what I spent the last year and a half doing which is following, and he, he actually says in that book, his favourite book, his favourite bird is the Manx Shearwater. And, but he has a chapter on it, and I've kind of stolen the idea and put a whole book. But what he's very clever at is building the atmosphere around what he's describing and writing the nature into it so that you can kind of feel the storm and the rain and the, you know, that. that. Um, and, and, I got to the end. Of, I think any book that makes you determined to change yourself. I got to the end of that one. I was absolutely determined to tell people about these birds so that they stopped. This, this sounds incredibly sort of pompous, and everything, but to tell people about these birds so that they stop damaging them. And that's what the Shearwater tries to do. Well, that's, thank you very much for coming today, Roger. It's been really interesting hearing your, your chat with Susie. And uh, best of luck with the new book. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you both. Made by the people of Petersfield. This is Shine Radio. So, Tim, what's coming up that we need to look out for? Well, there are a number of big books coming out in paperback. Um, and perhaps the biggest of them all is The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel in, in every sense of the word. <laughs> I mean, it is a massive book and it's the third part of her trilogy about... Um, uh, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, and it is it is, I think, wonderful. We talked about it before on this program, so I won't I won't bang on about it more, other than to say, uh, it is an extraordinary piece of work. Okay, the second book again it's another book that I, that we've talked about when it came out a year ago in hardback, and that is Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. Brilliant. Uh, set in in 1967, possibly 68. Um, about a, a rock band in a typically David Mitchell fashion. It, it wanders around with the different characters and even wanders around with, with characters from his previous books. Again, it's a mishmash of different genres. There's a bit of slightly weird stuff going on there, which is verging on the, on the sort of fantastical at times. But the rest of the time, it's just a fantastic rock biog um, uh, with all these, with these crazy characters. So really recommend that. I mentioned Anne Tyler earlier. Her book, Redhead by the Side of the Road, which is very, one of her very short uh, novels, is coming out in paperback. Uh, again, we've talked about that before. Um, a book I'm really looking forward to reading is Miss Benson's Beetle by Rachel Joyce. Now, she wrote The Unlikely Pilgrimage of Harold Fry, which was a big bestseller. I suppose it must have been six or seven years ago now. Um, 
which was a lovely book. Uh, her new book is set in 1950. Um, there's a lot of books set in different, yes. to very particular time scales this, this week. Um, about a woman who leaves her, her dead-end job to embark on an expedition to find a beetle. Now, that beetle may or may not exist, but that's not the point. The point is that she's decided to throw, it all, throw everything up in the air and, and see what happens. Go out on an expedition. So she, she advertises for a companion and, and the two of them set off. Um, so it's a sort of girl's own adventure, if you like. Sounds um, a bit like a Roger sort of. It does sound a bit like book, Roger's, yeah. Roger's ideas. Um, apparently, according to the Times, it's her best book yet, um, and it's um, it's it's exciting, moving, and funny. Finally, uh, published this month is that Hardy Annual Wisdom Cricketers Almanac. I thought I'd to bring <laughs> it up because of uh, Roger's cricketing uh, interest. Uh, it's been published now for first well, it's first published in eighteen sixty four. Wow! So it's been going a long, long time. And for those who don't know, it's the sort of armchair guide to everything you could conceivably want to know about the game of cricket that's happened in the last 12 months. In fact, this being a, a rather strange year for cricket with no, no one actually watching the game live, it's been a strange, strange one, but uh, I'm sure they'll find plenty to write about. Yeah, I always preferred Test Match Special anyway. I loved the radio more than actually watching it. Well, neatly fitting in with Roger's leisure pursuit in the cricket and in every way, um, but I must mention the Booksellers British Book Awards Fiction Shortlist. Well, I suppose I haven't got to, the people might be sighing, but I do think I ought to mention it because... Thanks to you, Tim. I've read most of them, and that must be a first. Very impressive. I Very know. Impressive. So they are, if you don't already know at home, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, The Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel, The Midnight Library, Matt Haig, The Evening and the Morning, Ken Follett, The Lying Life of Adults, Eleanor Ferranti, and The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. That's the only one I don't know anything about, actually. And, Tim, have you noticed who was um, shortlisted for Independent Publisher of the Year in the British Book Awards? Your publisher, Unbound. Unbound, again. It's really good. I'm very excited. And they are good. Um, And you never know, next year my audiobook of Sea Paths might be there. Or, as we have heard, it could be Roger's book. You never know. You never know. Well, my backlisted choice this month is Clive James' Unreliable Memoirs. I'm appalled to discover that um, it was written so long ago, appalled because I remember it so vividly. And it was first published in 1980. Did you read it at the time, Tim? Or have you never... I, was, I was far too young. <laughs> That's cruel. Um, he's raised an eyebrow. I mean, it's probably sadly true. I was actually teaching them when I read this. Um, but anyway... This I, I was still at school. Oh. Sorry, sorry, I need to say <laughs> I could have taught you. So um, this edition is published 2015 um, with an introduction by P.J. O'Rourke. So if you do want to um, read it, if you haven't already, I'd advise you not to read the introduction by P.J. O'Rourke because it would have entirely put me off. Um, it's really it's like when somebody has light wit and somebody's explaining the joke it's just tedious and dreadful he's a bit of a marmite character pj i think he's not everybody's cup of tea yes marmite indeed i think we can hear from my voice which side of marmite it falls for me so um Why is this so brilliant? I love it because there's a clue in the title. The only country that this book didn't sell very well in was America. I think they couldn't handle the idea of an unreliable memoir. Is it true or not? Um, And clearly, there's an emotional truth. Now, I think we're straying into dangerous territory now um, because I think there's too much, well, it's my truth, i.e., well, it might be a lie. But I think if you're presenting this as a, almost a fiction, honestly, but it's an idyllic view. Well, actually, Clive James says it's an idyllic view of Australia, but I have to say I disagree. I mean, I shuddered. And because, listeners, you'll hear I'm not male so and I wasn't born male at any stage and it came as a very deep shock to me of the extreme horror that is young male growing up 
Um, and I did check with various friends um, and they seemed to find it entirely plausible that boys are as hideous as he supposes. And our producer, John, is nodding his head. Um, anyway, but I want to read to you two short extracts that I hope that you can also relate to. And I certainly could um, in the first one, because one of the things I loved was the Odeon South Sea and we used to have Saturday matinees uh, and for half a crown you won't remember that Tim it was a currency for half a crown I could have a packet of crisps and a Kia Ora orange and get into the Saturday matinee but what you need to know is that in Australia sweeties as we would call them were called lollies the star lolly, outstripping even the violet crumble bar and the fantail in popularity, was undoubtedly the Jaffa. A packet of Jaffas was loaded like a cluster bomb with about 50 globular lollies the size of ordinary marbles. The Jaffa had a dark chocolate core and a brittle orange candy coat. In cross-section it looked rather like the planet Earth. It presented two alternative ways of being eaten, each with its own allure. You could fondle the Jaffa on the tongue until your saliva ate its way through the casing, whereupon the taste of chocolate would invade your mouth with a sublime, majestic inevitability. Or you could bite straight through and submit the interior of your head to a stunning explosion of flavour. Sucking and biting your way through 40 or so Jaffas while Jungle Jim wrestled with the crocodiles, you nearly always had a few left over after the stomach could take no more. The spare Jaffas made ideal ammunition. Flying through the dark, they would bounce off an infantile skull with the noise of bullets hitting a bell. They showered on the stage when the manager came out to announce the lucky ticket. The Jaffa is part of Australia's theatrical heritage. There was a famous occasion during the Borovansky ballet production of Giselle at the Tivoli in Sydney when Olbrecht was forced to abandon the performance. It was a special afternoon presentation of the ballet before an audience of schoolchildren. Lying in a swoon while awaiting the reappearance of Giselle, Albrecht aroused much comment because of his protuberant codpiece. After being hit square on the power bulge by a speeding Jaffa, he woke up with a rush and hopped off the stage in the stork position. I leave you with that one <laughs> and move swiftly on. To, now, this I can't relate to exactly in, in Boy Meets Girl, but certainly Girl Meets Boy. And I love that moment in almost prepubescence, actually, when you start fancying the opposite sex, but you don't really know what to do about it very much. So you do things like, look how I can jump over this puddle or look how high I can climb a tree, which is just completely absurd. But he writes this very well. And he's only 11. My next amorous vision was the pocket Venus. Again, we were on holiday, this time at a resort on the Hawkesbury River called Una Voce, which was pronounced Univos, even by its pr proprietors. Being by then almost 11 years old, I was better able to stay out of my mother's hair. If there were any patches of giant nettles, I managed to walk around them instead of falling in. It was my mother who gave my vision its name. We were having lunch in the dining room on our first day in residence when a small adolescent girl walked in. She had on a soft pale pink blouse, white shorts and gold sandals laced up the calf in the manner of a miniaturised tennis-playing Greek goddess. Sitting there in my short trousers with my feet nowhere near touching the floor, I instantly realised that my lack of years was an irreversible tragedy. There seemed no hope of making her aware that I was alive. I lurked in the corridors, waiting for an opportunity to walk suddenly past her. There was, of course, no question of actually addressing her in words. As I remember it, my plan was to attract her attention by the intensity of my walk. The idea was to look so lost in thought that she would be unable to resist asking what the thought was. Alas, she resisted successfully for days on end, despite the fact that she was unable to travel far in any direction without having her path abruptly crossed by a short, swiftly moving philosopher. 
When I wasn't hanging around the corridors, I was immersed in the swimming pool, waiting for her to appear so that she could be impressed by my ability to swim across and back underwater. Since the pool was no bigger than a sheep dip, this was scarcely a great feat, but with the exception of the pocket Venus, everyone sitting around the pool was ready to agree when prompted that I had the amphibian properties of a platypus. The pocket Venus was never there to agree about anything. On the day she finally showed up, she was wearing a light blue satin one-piece costume and looked more beautiful than the mind could bear. Desperate for recognition, I took a deep breath and went into my act. The stress of the moment, however, caused me to take this deep breath under the surface instead of above it. Having travelled about a yard, I emerged with my hair in my eyes and my lungs full of water. Exercising heroic self-control, I did not cough or splutter, but managed a terrible half-smile, which was meant to indicate that I had just thought of something important enough to warrant interrupting an otherwise inevitably successful assault on the world swimming record. When my vision cleared, the pocket Venus was no longer there. Poor Clive. So, um, honestly, I do recommend that heartily. It was really, really funny. And the reason why I went back to it, I was actually going to do something else um, for Backlisted. But um, this month, at the end of April, is the Iceland Writers Retreat that I like to go to. But it's virtual. Um, which means it's brilliant. I can go to all the workshops and Adam Gopnik, who writes The New Yorker, who's another writer that really makes me laugh. We have to read that for his workshop. And so because I did that, I remembered it was so much funnier than I actually did remember, but also extremely poignant in places, particularly mm-hmm. about his dad. Also, I've never I've never sat down and read any of his any of his books. I've read, used to really enjoy his journalism, mm. his written journalism and his and his spoken journalism. Um, and I think he, he had a, his wonderful turn of phrase and um, always entertaining. So uh, perhaps I need to settle down with that. Well, there you are. There's something else for you. Um, so next month, we'll be talking to Sue Wallman, a prize-winning author of young adult thrillers. Her debut, Lying About Last Summer, was winner of the Zoella Book Club 2016. And she has since published another three all-winning awards, and Dead Popular was W.H. Smith Book of the Month 2019. Her new book, I Know You Did It, is out on the 6th of May. So if you have any questions for Sue or our guest in June, Lissa Evans, do email us at team at shineradio, one word, dot UK. Excellent. That's it for this month. Do share any favourite reads with us at Shine Radio as well. And remember to drop into One Tree Books. And if you would like to catch up with any of my backlisted choices, they are all available on the Shine Radio website and use our other fabulous bookshop. We're lucky enough to have in town Petersfield Bookshop for those. You've been listening to Talking Books with Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Produced by John Wellsman. Fox gloves. Hardy geraniums. Tithonia. Rudolphia. Dahlias. Tons of zinnias. An award-winning garden designer. And I've been designing for 25 years. A passionate home gardener. Do a little bit, but often. <laughs> Growing together with Anne-Marie and Claire. It's given me so much joy. New every <laughs> month and only from Petersfield's Shine Radio. Tomatoes. Tomatoes.